Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you, and welcome to another edition of Around the Table. I have with me regular panelists, Mr. Ahmed Salamullah, Safir Ahmed, and Atik Ahmed Bhatti. Welcome, gentlemen, and Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you all. Walaikum salam. We continue the series on the greatest revolutionaries, focusing on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah, on him. We've covered uh, pertinent points in his life up until the, his declaration uh, of faith and his call to his uh, family, friends and the wider community in Mecca to the belief in one God. And uh, in the last episode, at the end of the last episode, we talked about the persecution that had started and the means that the Quraysh, the tribes, leaders took in order to stop the Prophet Muhammad from propagating his faith. Um, and we heard uh, a description of the sort of people that were following him, had become his followers um, in general terms. Um, they were mainly the, the weak, the oppressed, those who could be described as the, the lowly folks in society. However, there were obviously exceptions to this. As Abu Bakr, his closest ally and friend, um, being a, a, a wealthy tradesman at the time, and, and there were others as well. But in general terms, it could be said that it was the, the weaker segments of society that joined him in his early uh, propagation of, of faith. So we're now in year four or five after his declaration of faith and call uh, to Islam. Uh, and we see that the intensity of the persecution of the people of Mecca against the Holy Prophet of Islam and his followers intensifies considerably. They're now out. They've tried all attempts to stop him. They've tried bribery. They've tried explaining to his uh, uncle to stop, uh, get him to stop his propagation and now that they're trying force so forcibly this they're stopping individuals from going anywhere near the prophet muhammad to listen to his message uh and certainly not to to accept his message sophie perhaps you can give us a, a little overview of what was going on at that time now Indeed. So, uh, as you've mentioned, or as we touched upon before in the previous episode, where we talked about the initial resistance that the Prophet of Islam met towards uh, the acceptance of his message and touched on some of the, the reasons why that was, this was essentially, essentially a challenge to the existing power structure of society. Um, but beyond that, that society reacted and that reacted, that society reacted um in an unfavorable way, by and large, um, there were some weak and feeble followers at the start um, without real stake in society, but there was also some quite powerful opponents. And those opponents were determined to stop this, the spread of this religion, which was going to impact their way of life and um, what had you know, changed the way things had been for them as far as they could remember. And so they engaged in uh, acts of persecution against um, the Prophet of Islam and his followers, and you know there was a great deal of of suffering that that befell the the Muslims during these days, and it's very quite hard to actually uh, appreciate that. There's some detailed examples, and, and perhaps we'll go into uh, into them late, later. 
Uh, one notable example that I'd like to draw attention to would be um, the example of Bilal bin Rabah, um, and he was actually uh, an Abyssinian slave. He was a slave of a man called, uh, a slave of um, Umayyah bin Khalaf. Um, and it's quite a renowned example of the type of persecution that the Muslims felt. So being a slave and being a black slave in an Arab society was uh, a quite a lowly, probably one of the most lowly positions uh, a person could find themselves in. But this is one individual who, uh, to whom the message of Islam was greatly appealing. And in and there's a very sad um, event that has been recorded in in the in the history of Islam where he found himself that um, in in the scorching heat of the, of the afternoon in the in the rocky grounds around the city or the town of Mecca, his master would take him out and strip him of his clothes and then lie him down on those burning rocks, baking in the sun, and then place further incredibly hot rocks upon his chest and demand that he would change um, change his message or change his beliefs, return to worshipping the, the 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 gods of or the idols of um, his his forefathers. Uh, that's his master's forefathers. They are so he's demanded worship Lut and Uzzah and abandon Muhammad, or I shall punish you to death. Uh, Bilal, being that Abyssinian slave, didn't speak Arabic particularly well. The only response he would uh, convey was Ahud, Ahud, which is the Arabic for Allah is one. Allah is one. The very basic teaching, the fundamental, foundational teaching, which uh, the Muhammad, the Prophet, peace be upon him, had conveyed to him by this point. This response served only to further infuriate his master, and he would then tie a rope around his neck, hand him over to some vagabonds of of the town, and they'd then go and drag his body through the, ste- the streets of the town. Uh, a visible act of of torture, really, to uh, uh, a um, very humble and um, powerless individual in society, uh, but still he'd uh, he'd still just repeat those those two words or that one word ahad. Uh, those are the only words that came to his tongue. His uh, his persecution somewhat came to an end when uh, the great friend and follower uh, of of the Holy Prophet Hazrat Abu Bakr peace be upon him um, uh, saw this persecution happening for the spectacle and he purchased purchased the slave from his master it was a hefty price but then he he moved to set that slave free yeah, just one example of the type of torture that the, the weak followers of the muslims and, and just notable because he's not he's not a Quraysh, he's not an arab so he doesn't have those rights that the society um gave to um people of of the the right caste if you want the right family the right uh, background he because he was that slave he had none of those protections and he and the people in power were free to do with him as he will as they willed and fortunately after suffering that torture uh, someone with some power in society Hazrat Abu Bakr saw that and set him free after purchasing him so just an example mm, thank you Sophie and it's interesting that um Abu Bakr, who, as we know, is the companion of, of the Holy Prophet, uh, went and uh, saw this brutality uh, and and purchased the slave to set him free. And it's recorded in some history books that um, uh, he asked the the, the, the owner of uh, Bilal how much he would want for um, the slave. And uh, 
the the price was set at uh, I believe it was ten ten dirhams, and the Abu Bakr gives him ten dirhams, and the owner turns around and says, you know, I w- I would have uh, sold him for for one. That's that's his worth, and Abu Bakr uh, peace be upon him. Um, uh, turns around and says, "If you'd asked me for one hundred, I would have given, given you one hundred for him. That's his worth." So, um, it, it's an interesting instance that really, in that society, um, as Sophia says, he's a slave. He's, he's from Abyssinia. He's um, probably one of the, amongst the lowest um, rungs of the ladder in, in that society, and yet you have um, the 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 Muslim groups trying to help um, those who are in this predicament as much as they can. Atik, are there any other incidents at that time for, of the persecution that was taking place? There's a considerable amount, actually, and I know that we read also uh, one very brutal account, which was that um, somebody, a believer, was tied. Um, he's, you know, His legs were tied to two camels, and the camels were made to go in the opposite direction, and uh, God forbid you can only think what that would do, obviously, or what the result would be. Um, There is a number of things that there was a man, for example, who was over a mature age, um, but after a verdict against him for Islam, uh, his uncle tied him with ropes and beat him, Um, but he did nothing because the believers at that time gave their lives literally so you know they were they were resolute in this message that was preached by Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him there is an example of uh, Sayyid bin Zaid who was the brother-in-law of Hazrat Umar um, he was actually from the uh, Banu Adi and was honored among his people but when Umar al-Khattab was informed of his Islam he threw him down and sat upon his chest and also wounded his sister now there is another example that this violence, you know, it reached almost like a, a pinnacle, and Safri has mentioned already about uh, Bilal. Um, there is an example that uh, Suhaib bin Sinan Rumi, though he was not a slave and was relatively well off, he was beaten by the Quraysh to the extent that he would lose his senses. And this is the same with somebody called Suhaib, who actually was the individual appointed as the Imam of Salat. Um, by Hazrat Umar, and uh, Imam Salat is the, uh, the 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 person who is appointed to lead the members in uh, prayers, um, and he was given this title by the way after he was wounded. But uh, it is there's an example that once uh, the Quraysh took hold of him and placed him on the sizzling coal of his own furnace, while someone stood upon his breast so that he could not turn over. Now, you know we all have had hot coal for example when we have a barbecue can you imagine being forced down and not able to move on hot coals um, as your skin melts or burns literally but i think the details of the afflictions uh, you know that were inflicted upon amr and his father uh, yasir and mother sumeya were the ones that are quite spine chilling and this is one of many of course so well, one time when the devotees of Islam were being victimized by this physical torment, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he passed by coincidentally, and he looked towards them and compassionately said, Be steadfast, O family of Yasir, for Allah has prepared paradise for you in recompense 
for these hardships. But ultimately, Yasser met his demise by torture, and as for the elderly Sumeya, uh, Abu Jal struck a spear into her thigh so mercilessly that it actually pierced other parts of her uh, body itself, and she gave her life, tossing about, uh, you know, writhing in pain at that very place. So, from this family, only um, Amr was left, and he was also subjected to extreme torture and anguish, and it was said to him that you must deny Muhammad. But even though he did say some inappropriate words at the time, when he relayed the message to the Prophet, um, the Prophet gave him glad tidings. But this was just some of the the um, the torture uh, and uh, sort of victimization, you know, that was going on at that time. So the Quraysh were not satisfied with just verbal abuse. It was physical and it was mental, and it was uh, mental abuse, physical abuse, but also extreme levels of torture to the point that people gave up their life um, believing in God uh, and they became martyrs, uh, the early martyrs of Islam. Some brutal, brutal and hor horrific uh, incidents that you've uh, shared with us, uh, Adik. I mean, you've described it as torture and, uh, and of course it was extreme torture and just for um, their belief in uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad and the oneness of God. And so all of the torture and persecution would end if they denounced it. That's all the uh, tormentors were asking is you disown or disassociate yourself from Muhammad and disassociate yourself from this belief in, in the one God. You, just reading these incidents, Safir, and, and the extent that the Quraysh were going to, it could be compared to to what we now describe as um, terrorism. It was terrorism. These people were being um, uh, tried, were trying to rule by fear. The reason why I wanted to bring it to attention, the incident of Hazrat Bilal, which we touched on at the top of this segment, was because of the type of torture that he received. There was two, there was two distinct phases to it. Certainly that, that in, in that which was recorded, there was that one, which was the placing of the hot coals um, on, in the heat of the, the Meccan sun, which was um, visited upon him by his master. But then, which was, uh, you could imagine, I mean, I'm, it's not clear from the details whether that was in private or that was in front of people. Uh, but the second part of that is when he, his master at the time paid some vagabonds from the town to drag him through the town um, and... Uh, you know, as 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 an act of torture, so not not only inflicting pain upon him, um, forcing him to or attempting to force him to recant his beliefs, but also actually uh, doing it in a very public and a very visible way. Um, this can only be described in in anyone's terms as an attempt to rule by fear. Um, you are you are visibly showing what. Um, could become of you uh, uh, should you accept this message and if you are weak in society. You're also, um, at the same time as um, persecuting that one individual, in many ways you're persecuting everyone who, witness, who bears witness to that uh, because that might um, make them afraid to approach uh, anything like accepting this religion and this is exact this is essentially how terrorism works it's ruled by fear it's um uh it's it's making people doubt what they might truly feel or making people afraid to change anything in society and that's an example of a pretty tyrannical 
um, uh, a society, and that was certainly an aspect of the Prophet of Islam's mission, peace be upon him, is to change not only that society, but society for all of time beyond this, this period of history. On, on that same point, it's actually uh, important to take into consideration that we've just been talking about more of the physical harm. This all would have caused a lot of mental torture and humiliation being dragged through the streets of Mecca in front of your friends and families who at the time were potentially, who were not Muslims, would have seen and would have shut their doors and said, you know what, this is not for me. But yet, day on day, this made the believers more and more stronger and attracted more and more Muslims. So I think um, more and more people towards Islam. So I think it's important to understand that the physical harm is one side, but the mental torture for the individual and for their friends and family that would have absolutely been horrible at the time for them. Seeing you know your fellow Muslims being dragged through the streets would have been absolutely awful. Yeah, it's a really good point that you make there, Ahmed. And and um, what would have the feelings of the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad peace be upon him be at that time when he sees his followers? Um, being humiliated, persecuted, tormented, terrorized, and killed uh, for the sake of the the faith that he's propagating. And he's not uh, left uh, alone either. I mean, there are uh, attempts to murder him. There are, uh, you know, vagabonds set uh, to torment him. So, so... He's not left alone either, uh, uh, Atik, is he? No, not at all. If it was not a lady throwing rubbish upon him, and incidentally, when that lady didn't do that for a period of time, a few days even, the Prophet inquired about her health. So this was the mercy for mankind, this was this individual, that for God Almighty he was able to undergo all types of uh, persecution, you know, there was loathe, there was hate. There was uh, obviously physical <laughs> attacks upon the Prophet himself when he went to dive. Um, and he was chased out of the town. And in the narrations, the authentic narrations, it states that as he ran from that town, or he was forced to run, should I say rather, that otherwise he would have been killed. Um, they, uh, his, you know, his uh, sandals or what he was wearing at that time, his footwear, was oozing, you know, it was full of blood. So this is the level of, um, in Arabic, they call it taqwa, which is trust, faith in God Almighty, in Allah, that the Prophet had. Um, And this is what he had to display so that the others, uh, you know, this was, you could almost say, it 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 was, of course, as we've spoken about, it had to happen because anything good is firstly, initially all is rejected, especially when it comes to matters of faith and religion but this is the the, the what had the prophet himself had to go through before uh, to strengthen his followers should i say um to invigorate them more not that he wanted to i'm saying but i mean as a cause and effect they saw their beloved master suffering at the hands of those who wanted to to kill him to take his life um, but rather than become weak it inspired them it made them more resolute and it made them firmer in their belief yeah the 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 level of patience and perseverance is is, uh, outstanding isn't it it really uh, does beg a belief when when you see uh, the amount of uh, 
hatred and, and torture that the followers uh, of the Holy Prophet and the Holy Prophet himself has, has gone through uh, during this this period. Ahmed? Yeah, the interesting aspect of this is actually speaks for the Holy Prophet that during that sensitive time, the Holy Prophet did not care about his own personal suffering, but was more worried about the hardship of the Muslims which have had accepted Islam, especially the weaker Muslims. On the one hand, you had the Holy Prophet who knew well that all nations that are molded are molded by trials and tribulations. So, to your point, this was always going to happen. However, from this point, the Holy Prophet considered these hardships um, as a means of training for them uh, and his companions. So, what he did actually to uh, and kept preaching to them is that he mentioned about all the past prophets and we spoke about this a few times right no prophet comes with you know there's not been a prophet where he which has not been mocked which has not been mocked before by his people and which had to go through trials and tribulations you know we look at the likes of jesus christ we look at the likes of moses we look at uh, you know countless number of prophets that have come they've all had to face very strict trials and tribulations and the holy prophet of islam was not going to have it any different and what he what the holy prophet did he explained to his uh to the fellow muslims that look this was always going to happen and be steadfast okay and you know you've got a number of different the number of different um companions that approach him one of them being Hazrat abdur rahman bin of who said uh, o messenger of allah when we were idolaters we were revered and none dead laid upon the side upon us so basically when we were uh, not muslims no one dared touching us but after we become muslims we became weak and powerless and at the, at the hands of Goresh now we're being per, um, persecuted on a daily basis and he actually asked the Holy Prophet oh messenger of Allah permit us to fight these disbelievers and you know what the Holy Prophet said he said I have been ordered by Allah to pardon I cannot give you this permission to fight and this was at the time of Mecca so regardless what we're going through we will not lay a finger we will not fight back our our belief is in Allah so what uh, Atik uh, just mentioned, you know, we were steadfast. They had their trust in God that ultimately we were, we were always going to win. We have to be patient. Yeah, it's a fundamental teaching, isn't it? Patience and prayer is what the Holy Prophet uh, taught his, his followers, that uh, we're not going to respond, you know, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but we we will uh, be patient uh, and bear um these trials and tribulations with with patience. Um, Savita, I just want to come to you uh, and get a an insight uh, into how the Holy Prophet of Islam it, it may have felt at that period. You know, his mission has started. He's got followers who are joining him slowly. Um, they're they're weak, uh, uh, both in society and generally. Um, what what how can we describe that period of the Holy Prophet? Do you think? Um, I think, I think first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that. Um, just looking at, just imagining it, um, what he is perceiving, he is, he's been commanded to convey a particular message to all of the people around him. Um, the only people that respond really to that message are his very, very near ones and some humble members 
of the society, people without a stake in it. Beyond this, the society is challenging him. Not only that, it's persecuting and terrorizing his followers. Um, he, and it's all because of what he claimed. It's all happening because of what he's asking society, asking of society just to change their method of belief. Beyond that, um, there's a, you know, the, um, the implications of what he's saying is it means to fundamentally turn away that whole society from what it was doing before. But you can imagine that he's created a bit of a, um, uh, a situation where those people that are following him um, are actually being subject to this terrorism. So you can only imagine that he was certainly um, feeling a great deal of anguish. So to, I think Emma said, look, he, he, he asked his followers to meet you know the highest standards of patience and steadfastness examples of which you know i'm sure are few and far between in history and perhaps never matched um to witness those public public acts of humiliation of persecution and torture and just to bear it but to never never do anything other than hold fast on on the few teachings that he was delivering to them um despite this for some period of time this goes on for a long time um he he doesn't change his message he could easily you know if he was um if if these acts of terror had an effect on him he could easily have walked away if he was just a regular person this is why we believe he's a prophet he's we're muslims um he could have just walked away who would want that you know to visit that that kind of behavior on the people that he, he purports to care about it doesn't make sense um you know he could easily just accepted all the gifts and the bribes and the persecution could have gone away. I'm sure he could have made some demands that it all stopped if, and he would have stopped his message. But he didn't do that. That was the easy way out. Unfortunately for his followers, they had to, um, they had to bear that for, for, for more of time, you know, more time. So you can imagine it's, it's a very difficult situation to be in, to, to be steadfast on your message, but witness the impact that has on the people that start following you. Thank you, Safir. Uh, looks like we've come to the end of this segment of the program. Uh, we'll continue our discussion straight after this short break. Please join us after the short break. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. And welcome back to Around the Table, where we continue our discussion on the greatest revolutionary, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. We're talking about the persecution that was meted out to his followers and to himself, indeed, uh, at the uh, time uh, in Mecca where he's spreading his message of uh, Islam, the unity of God Almighty, and his declaration of, of prophethood. Um, Safid, there's uh, a number of incidents and uh, examples of uh, extreme torture and terrorism that we've described in the previous segment. Um, can we just expand upon what was going on in Mecca at that time? Yeah, so um, as we touched on before, uh, uh, 
the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, has created a clamor in the society and there's some divisions beginning to form, some weak followers being attracted to his faith, but that's challenging the precepts upon which that society is built. Um, the followers uh, per persecuted, as you touched on just then, uh, but actually in comparison to, to that, the Holy Prophet of Islam wasn't left unscathed. Um, the, the, the powerful agents in that society began to move against him as well. As with any society, even in today, you know, there was some politics, um, there was some uh, negotiations, some uh, machinations being being uh, brought to bear against the Prophet of Islam himself, even to the point at which the Quraysh, they began to threaten other tribes, saying that um, because, as we touched on briefly before, uh, the tribes, the, the relationships, the bloodlines are all incredibly important, and so was the, um, the coverage of a, a tribe's protection. Now, what the Quraysh were beginning to threaten was that if uh, his own tribe did not refrain from backing and protecting the Prophet of Islam, they would fight them all. So this was now another threat from a powerful agent in society moving against those uh, backers or those who were, um, by, the, by the rules of that society, bound to protect Muhammad himself. So that becomes a very real threat, not just to his mission, uh, but also to his life, ultimately. So... This is a very dangerous moment now. I mean, the danger never went away. And in fact, you could argue, and we'll probably touch on it later, it only ever grew greater until um, you know, later on in the Prophet of Islam's life. But one I thought was a particularly interesting event or instance was um, was about the, the upcoming season of the Hajj. So as we mentioned, the, the pilgrimage continued through Makkah for many years, many generations before the Prophet of Islam was raised. It was a particularly holy site. It, it, it attracted pilgrims of, of different kinds to come to this to this site. There's a great history of it. So there was a season of Hajj and uh, pilgrims were expected. And what pilgrimage did uh, was actually bring different people together. It, it also created you know, a useful period of trade. Items of goods uh, were exchanged and probably ideas would be exchanged. People would interact with one another and socialize. So what the, the, the leaders of that society acknowledged was actually, well, this person's created, uh, the Prophet of Islam, I should say, or Muhammad has created uh, a, a clamor in society. We need to think about how we manage that uh, to the people who are going to flock towards Mecca for, for the pilgrimage. So they, they began a consult, period of consultation and an individual uh, called Walid bin Mughera was one of their leaders of the Quraysh and made a speech at his home outlining the issue and I capture this quote. And now the time of Hajj has arrived and, and the word of Muhammad, peace, and, peace be upon him, uh, Muhammad's message has, has reached out and the people shall come from for Hajj they'll definitely question us about him. So by consultation, we should agree upon a compelling answer so that we do not negate one another and lessen the influence of our plan. So what he's saying is, like, how do we manage this, the fact that actually one of our sons, one of someone from quite a, a prestigious family is actually move, making, um, voicing his concerns and condemning our beliefs. And then one response came immediately saying, he's a soothsayer. Um, he's gathered a few people around him. But then people say, you know, some people challenge that. Will he himself challenge that? So how can we say that? He doesn't, you know, doesn't have any qualities of someone like that. He didn't think it was a plausible message. And then someone else said, let's say he's mad. He's got a madness to him. 
again, um, the Walid's response to that was, well, he's never expressed or betrayed any madness to his character. And if you'd speak to him, you'd probably not find him to be mad. So who can believe us? We've got to be more believable than that. Another person said, let's say he's just a poet and he's got some influential um, and persuasive poet, poetic couplets. But again, that didn't satisfy. People will laugh at us was Walid's challenge if we said that he's just a poet that's gathered a few followers. So this goes on for, for some time and um, the the exchange continues and there's a final suggestion and that suggestion is that it was ultimately decided that the Prophet of Islam would be declared a magician and that message would be um, conveyed in unison by the leaders of the Quraysh to anyone who came from outside. He had a secret magic uh, and the implications of this magic was that it was separating son from father and brother from brother and husband from wife. He's saying he's fracturing society because those the weak followers were often someone's brother, someone's wife, etc. And uh, they could use that as an explanation for what was happening. Is that And their explanation was this quite ludicrous thing that he was a magician. And that's that was the seed that they were going to try and sow to those many visitors that would come during the season of Hajj. Really interesting points there, Sophie. Thank you. So first of all, they try to suppress his voice. So they try to suppress um, the, the message going out. They try to persecute and kill uh, the few people that, that listen to him and join his his uh, movement, uh, and then when when the voice expands and spreads, and they know that they cannot uh, stop people following him, they have to resort to uh, another method, and, and the method that you've described there is one of uh, propaganda or fake news, as we may call it in this day and age, where they've got to actually um, tarnish the 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 character of the Holy Prophet, calling him a, you know, a, a magician or a soothsayer or a poet or what have you, or or say that uh, he he has this trickery that uh, he can make people follow him. So don't uh, don't go anywhere near him. Um, and there's a really interesting um, narration, isn't there, Atik, of of this old lady who's coming uh, into Mecca carrying her heavy luggage and. Uh, by incident, uh, one may say, or, or it could be the uh, the wish of God Almighty that this would happen, that the Prophet Muhammad meets her along the way. Could you share with our listeners uh, the rest of that story? Uh, yes, I mean, the, you see, during all this persecution, um, the Prophet of Islam was Muhammad, as he has peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as he always was. The only change that was seen um, in the Holy Prophet was that God Almighty was revealing to him verses of the Holy Quran. God Almighty was guiding him as to how to save the people of uh, Arabia, who would then, obviously, that message would then go on to save, you know, people from across the world. So this, there is a, uh, a narration that this uh, lady came and the Prophet of Islam um, offered to carry her bags and she glad, gladly um, accepted. But along the way, she said such and such about the Prophet of Islam, saying that, oh, I've heard this about him and that about him. Um, and to this, the Prophet, out of his humility, um, said nothing. He uttered no words. And 
um, after he had helped the lady, it just so happened that she found out that actually this man that helped her was actually that man that she was talking bad about and that it was Muhammad. So this is how he changed the hearts of people. In fact, although it's not related um, to the, the subject matter particularly here, but there is a very interesting narration that once the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, was at home and it was uh, his wife, Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, whose uh, whose turn it was to cook. And actually food was delivered by some somebody else to the Prophet. And as a result, the Prophet, uh, Hazrat Aisha, Her Holiness Hazrat Aisha, she became so angry that she struck this pot. And in those days, they were the pots were not steel pots like they are now, probably made of clay or, or something like that. And it fell to the floor and broke into pieces. And whatever was in there was on, also on the floor. And the Prophet was so humble. Um, and by his actions, he always painted a thousand uh, words. Um, rather than say anything, he uh, got down on his knees and he started to pick the food up and put this pot together. And that is what changed Hazrat Aisha. And then she then apologized. And she picked up that pot. Where, uh, she helped the Prophet. And they sat down and had their meal. So uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is that he led by example, by his own actions. Um, and this is what left the impression up to this day, today, you know, this is the impression that resounds with uh, Muslims around the world, the, the love for him because of his actions, because of his humility um, and just the way that he was. Uh, God created him in such a way that, um, you know, that's why we are talking about him today in this series of revolutionaries. That, that, that example that you've uh, given in one of the previous uh, series about, I think it was his neighbor who was an old lady and on a daily basis she would throw her rubbish outside his door. Uh, and on the third or fourth, or I think maybe the fifth day, when she didn't, um, the Holy Prophet inquired and said, hey, are you okay? How are you feeling? And she was actually ill. And that kind of speaks again about his, you know, what you're talking about, his persona, his humility, about his being caring for humanity. Regardless who you are, his first point here is that, you know, he's there to look after you, you know, physically as well. The fact that she didn't throw her, he knew something wasn't up with her, she wasn't right maybe. So he inquired about her, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? And this is um, a, a beautiful uh, story in my view, which speak, you know, kind of summarizes, you know, how the Holy Prophet was with his fellow human beings, regardless if they were Muslims or non-Muslims. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so let's move on then. Uh, we, we hear about the persecution that was taking place. We know that uh, the Hajj took place and uh, it was an opportunity for the Holy Prophet to expand his mission to to a wider audience to tell people about the the message of uh, Islam and the unity of God Almighty and his claim to prophethood. But even after that, uh, the persecution continues. The followers ask permission from the prophet to defend themselves or to um, fight back. But the prophet um, says, no, we're not here to to kill and and uh, maim and fight back uh, we're here to spread uh, compassion and lo and love um so then the prophet 
looks uh, at what can be done and uh, he advises a group of people to migrate and the migration uh, towards Abyssinia in order to find some haven of peace for, for his followers. So an expedition of a, a small group of followers is sent to Abyssinia. Yes, uh, that's uh, that's correct. Um, we, we must uh, bear in mind that uh, with the time that we have, the examples that we've given may, for the listener, may not seem, um, dare I say it, you know, as extreme as, as um, one would think, but they were of the worst nature, the, the, the torture that was given. So one example that I did mention was, you know, tying somebody's legs to two camels and then the camels were asked to go in the opposite direction making somebody lie on hot sand when it's you know 40 50 degrees outside in in the arabian desert um, and then putting stones or rocks on their stomach can only inflict not just burns but the skin melts so they you know these are just a very few amount of examples only the suffering yeah you know, had was limitless. It was just carried on and on and on. And you're right, this... you're... Sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say you're absolutely right. I mean, we mention it and we pass over it in a few minutes. It's not a few minutes in the life, is it? It's not even a few hours. It's not even a few days. But it went for months and years. Continuous suffering, continuous abuse, continuous. Um, terrorism as we've described it going on mm. day in day out for years and also i mean you know this uh, we have to understand the tools that were used at that time were were you know they were not uh, they would not cause somebody to die instantly they were you know the torture was almost um planned to last as long as it possibly could you know beating uh, a slave or beating a, a woman so that she, you know, they might, God forbid, they lose an eye, and this, of course, happened, you know, or that they became senseless. Senseless means that you you just don't know because you've been beaten so hard and so many times that and broke having broken bones and um, it just carried on and on. So, um, you know, when the suffering actually um, of the Muslims had reached this limit by the people of the Quraysh, um, the Holy Prophet. He instructed some Muslims to migrate to Abyssinia, which you mentioned a short while ago. Now, the reason to choose Abyssinia was that the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that the king of Abyssinia is just and equitable and none are subjected to oppression under his rule. So he allowed his subjects to worship uh, however they wanted to worship. There was freedom um, to, to, you know, to worship um, and to be themselves. Now, this country was also referred to as Habasha, um, and in today's uh, language, it's called Ethiopia, um, but it was also referred to as Abyssinia, uh, as far as the English language is concerned. Um, now, it's exactly opposite Southern Arabia, um, with the exception, of course, of the, of the Red Sea. Now, during that era, a strong Christian sovereignty was actually established in Abyssinia, and the king was referred to as the Negus, and as a matter of fact, the ruler there is still called upon by the same name. And Arabia, fortunately, also had business relations with Abyssinia. So during this time, the, the, um, the prophet asked that a migration would go to Abyssinia 
um, and to seek the king's counsel so that they could uh, live in peace there. Therefore, upon the instruction, uh, it was actually in the month of uh, Rajab 5 Navavi, uh, which is uh, um, the fifth year, 11 men and four women. It was a very small amount, not many, 11 men and four women. It, you know, it's literally 15, isn't it? So it's not many at all. But they migrated to Abyssinia and uh, a number of well-known names uh, were asked to go. But, um, you know, it illustrates a number of things that the king, who was very benevolent, you know, allowed them to stay there in peace. Um, and as time went, uh, time went on, uh, you know, the slaves would also move and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that the number being uh, uh, 16 and, and the majority of those that went were, could be considered um, high in society as in relatively well off. So we have mm. um, Uthman bin Affan and um, his wife Rukeya, who was the daughter of the the, the Prophet uh, of Islam at that time. So his son-in-law and daughter go, his uh, close companions, uh, a few of them go as well. And uh, to find whether they could seek shelter in a peaceful place where they could worship freely. So have a freedom of religion and belief. Um, it's it's and an interesting say, point. Yeah. yeah. But also the, uh, there's a very important point actually that um, from what you've just said is that um, it also shows you that, uh, and this is obviously very something to ponder about, that even the, the, the majority of those pioneer immigrants were those who belonged to these powerful tribes of Quraysh. And it shows you that also um, even they were not free or safe from the cruelties of mm. the Quraysh. It did not matter where you belonged at that time. Indeed, indeed. So they they went as, as refugees. And um, what's really interesting is that... Uh, um, the king or, or the negus of Ethiopia as we know it now uh, was a Christian by uh, by religion, wasn't he? Yeah, just before we will come on to um, uh, the king himself, I just wanted to touch upon the significance of that uh, migration and it will become more significant later and we'll touch on the, the latter component then, but uh, immediately what it tells you is that the, this small group of people um They've taken the message of the Prophet of Islam to heart. They've witnessed the terrorism. They haven't um, weakened in faith. Um, they're ready to cut ties with everything they knew before in order to practice this faith in a country that they believed to be just and have a bit more religious, well, a lot more religious tolerance than the one that they that they had. I think it, 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 it's testament to... Um, um, the sincerity with which those early early followers um, uh, came into the fold of Islam and accepted that message, I think there's some there's a point there to be made just around um, what you know the truth of that message, or at least the the truth with which those followers felt it that they were willing to just cast everything they had in the world to history and go to a, a different country, a land that they probably don't know well, um, other than through reputation and perhaps some visitors from time to time. Um, uh, it's quite a compelling um, testament to the, the quality of the message that the Prophet of Islam is giving them. And it's also visible to to other people in their society, the one that they're going from. They can see that, okay, these people have some means, but um, they're actually leaving their the land of their forefathers, the land of their home, the land of their people, uh, to go somewhere completely alien, um, 
uh, just so that they can practice this message there must be something to that message it, it would they would have witnessed or and perhaps some people might have felt something from from that yeah and that example uh, is followed to this day isn't it in islam is if if you don't have your freedom of religion or belief in a particular place then you're uh, commanded to actually uh, leave that place and, and go where you can have uh, the opportunity to practice and profess your faith in in a free environment rather than yeah, to fight uh, and, and, and respond. And that's exactly, I mean, this is this is the point, you know, when people think about Islam, oh, it's, it's all about holy war, it's, uh, you know, it's about wars of conquest and wars of, you know, convert conversions, converting people to faith. The example that we have to remember when we reflect on what Islam is, is this very early example. There was no injunction to fight at the time. There was no conquest. How even could, you know, a group of largely humble people um, wage a war against this terrorist state that they found themselves in? Um, it's impossible. So what they did was actually go to somewhere where they believed, believed in freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And um and just to just those two points i think they are such valuable things it's even in today's age you know 21st century um those things are relatively rare in the world you don't really have that many it doesn't feel like you have that many places where you can genuinely be free to say what you want and do what you want as long as you're not hurting anybody and without fear of reprisal and those those states or those nations or regions of the world which have that uh, we have th which have that trait are actually you know standard bearers of a kind uh, because uh, it's a it's a rare privilege it feels like for certain regions in the world so you know we live in well, all of us I know in this call on this uh, pro radio program live in the United Kingdom we're recording this in the re United Kingdom and we're free to say what we want and profess our faith without fear of reprisal in public certainly by society at large and definitely not by the state um, so we should be grateful for that. And I think that's one thing that certainly one of many things that the United Kingdom has done right. Indeed. And as, as uh, you've rightly said, we, we, we live in a very free and open society. Sadly, in the, even in this day and age, there are uh, people belonging to religious uh, communities all across the world that are persecuted for their faith, be it Christian, uh, Muslim, uh, and the Muslim or, or, or others uh, in, in different parts of the world. Um, Let's uh, continue our discussion uh, with regards to the migration to Abyssinia then. Small group of people ascent. And remember in those days, the, the, the journey isn't just, you know, a day or two. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a long journey through some um, difficult terrain. They get to Abyssinia and how, how are they uh, welcomed? They were uh, welcomed um, by the Christian king. But at the same time, it's important to note that whilst they were welcomed, um, the Quraysh didn't leave them just in a in Arabia, uh, Pennsylvania. They actually followed them um, across the sea, and because the uh, Quraysh were very good, uh, had very good trading links with uh, Abyssinia, they sent their a delegation uh, along uh, with, you know, separately, and where who reached uh, the king and actually told them about you know these so-called muslims and how they've been causing havoc in their uh, peaceful society and one incident which is um which is very notable is that at that time um the king was suddenly um 
the king did not want to upset his uh, trading links with Quraysh because we've had them going on for you could say centuries so it was very important for him to have these links but at the same time this king was a just king it was a, he was a very intelligent powerful king so for him justice was very important so he did give the Muslims an opportunity to defend for themselves and say hey you know what is it that you want here in my country and they explained to him that look you know we we, we are the people of we, we have accepted islam uh at you know and the muhammad is a prophet of god is a prophet of god as was jesus as was and he they named a number of different prophets and the uh, the king was you know, suddenly had a you know started to realize hang on this is the same message that i have been taught and uh, from christianity they talk about the same people that i am aware of and you know a few things started to click for the king that you know that these are people are no different to me okay in one sense that they worship the same god they have the same prophets that are, you know that christianity has been taught in their bible um yes there are some differences in regards to when you start going you know theologically and the Quraysh actually picked on that point and said, look, you know, they don't see Jesus Christ as, you know, the son of God. And again, the Muslims very rightly, um, so Muslims at the time, um, defended for themselves and said, no, this is, you know, this is the case. Yes, we see Jesus, not the son of God, but we see him as a messenger of God. And the king being very, um, being very just and said, look, you can stay as long as you need to. And you can continue your worship as long as you need to within um, my country. In my country, you will have no um, persecution and you are free to pray and pre practice your religion. Thank you. Uh, I think it, the, the exchange that took place in the court of uh, the king is really interesting. And uh, if you permit me, I, I'd like to just share with our listeners uh, the actual... Um, words that were said or those words that have been recorded and so the the Quraysh who went there say to the king oh your royal highness some of our foolish people have forsaken their ancestral religion and have fashioned a new religion which opposes your religion as well they have caused disorder in our land and some of them have run away and reached here thus we implore you to send them back with us and then on behalf of the Muslims has Jafar bin Abi Talib, who uh, again was is a was a cousin of the the Holy Prophet, uh, and was the one of the leaders of the delegation. He responds most beautifully uh, on behalf of the Muslims, and he says, and I quote: "O King, we were an ignorant people. We worshipped idols. We ate the flesh of dead animals. We were engaged in adultery and fornication. We served ties of we severed ties of kinship." We dealt with our neighbours in dishonesty, and the powerful among us usurped the rights of the weak. In this state of affairs, Allah sent his messenger to us, whose nobility, truthfulness and honesty was known to all. He taught us the unity of God, forbade us from idol worship, and gave us teachings of truthfulness in speech, honesty and kind treatment to kith and kin. He taught us to treat our neighbours well and stopped us from adultery, lying and the usurpation of wealth of orphans and he held us from bloodshed. He instructed us to worship Allah. We believed in him and followed him but for this reason our people were displeased with us and subjected us to 
miseries and hardships and tortured us and desired that we abandon our faith by coercion and we finally left our homeland saddened and took refuge in your sovereignty o king we hope that under your rule we shall not be subjected to brutality and of course the king as Ahmed says was greatly touched and uh, um, responded by uh, allowing the the muslims to remain behind but i think this this uh, exchange just sums up uh, quite succinctly the situation from both sides uh, both parties the the Quraysh explain that these people are renegades they've left the religion of their forefathers and they're causing disorder in the land whereas the muslims are saying look this religion has lifted us both spiritually and morally we were involved in all sorts of moral decay adultery, fornication, treatment of Akif and Ken poorly and not looking after our neighbours and now we've we've learnt to love our fellow human beings and learnt to worship our God so so we've been raised spiritually to this new height and of course we all believe as Amdi Muslims that all religions at the core um, are, are from God Almighty so I'm sure that that message uh, uh, resonated uh, with the king and he uh, allowed the Muslims to remain there. Sadly, uh, we've run out of time in this episode. I'd like to thank panellists for sharing their insight uh, in our discussion on this programme. Do join us again on Voice of Islam around the table. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you.